Section 21 of Henry II by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11 The English Nation under Henry II. Part 1. Society in England during Henry's reign might be considered as arranged in three groups. One, the military class with the king at its head ranging from the semi-independent earl to the humble tenant of some fraction of a knight's fee two the merchants and traders dwellers in cities and seaports from the wealthy counsellor to the humble apprentice three the peasantry the comfortable yeoman the farm labourer whose theoretical lack of freedom often sat but lightly upon him and the hired servants from this third class the two superior classes were completed they formed the nameless ranks of archers and foot-soldiers who bore the brunt of many a battle and unprotected by coat of mail or prospect of ransom paid forfeit for defeat with their lives and they were the hardy sailors serving the merchants in time of peace but ever ready to convert their ships into men of war it might seem that the clergy should form a fourth class but they really fell into the same three divisions as the laity the prelates and dignitaries holding their lands by military service and bound to provide so many knights for the king's army sometimes leading their troops in person then opposed to these sons of the church militant the monks and canons of the religious orders intent on the business of religion not wholly averse to trading spiritual for material blessings and displaying some skill in laying up treasure in this life as well as for the next and finally the poor but not always honest parish priests and unattached clerks the hardest workers and the worst paid little above the secular peasantry from whose ranks they sprang their many virtues unrecorded and the excesses of their unworthy members pilloried if a fourth group did exist it consisted of the officials blending the characteristics of clerks soldiers and merchants men prepared at a moment's notice to hear pleas superintend the purchase and dispatch of stores or take command of a force of soldiers the king's supremacy in his court was indisputable his greatest nobles were proud to serve him and quick to resent any infringement of their rights of service thus the earl of arundel hereditary chief butler returning from a long journey just as the two kings henry and louis were sitting down to dinner strode into the hall flung off his cloak and seized the royal goblet from the acting butler who resisting the powerful earl knocked him down and presented the wine on bended knee to his royal master explaining apologetically to the french king that it was his privilege and that the deputy butler ought to have withdrawn without protest so also at a later date william de tancarville chamberlain of normandy forcibly possessed himself of the basin and ewer which another courtier was carrying to the king yet was henry the most accessible of men out of doors he suffered his subjects to crowd round him and speak to him freely in his court he was almost always ready to give informal audience to all who sought him and it was only at the very door of his bedchamber that a messenger would be challenged men of wit such as walter mapp the cynical canon of st paul's 
might break in on his conversation with a humorous or sarcastic comment unrebuked and henry could even take in good part the public reprimand addressed to him by an obscure monk of his neglected priory of widham the english court under henry attracted scholars of european fame and on the lighter side of literature we find the king encouraging gerard de berry the proto-journalist listening amusedly to his anecdotes and bantering him giving money to maurice the story-teller fabulatori and replying with mock seriousness to the heroics purported to be addressed to him by king arthur if his nobles did not share the king's literary tastes they were at least in tune with him on the subject of sport hunting and hawking were the recreations of the english and norman nobility and in his devotion thereto henry yielded to none of his subjects the keepers of his hounds formed not the most insignificant part of his retinue hawks were procured for him from norway and from ireland and passed as presents between himself and foreign princes when he went out of england whether for peaceful cause or war his hawks and hounds and huntsmen followed him his sons also like all the magnates of their days were devotees of the chase but the two elder found greater pleasure in the sport of war and the young king henry in particular shone as the patron of the tournament the gradual repression of private warfare at least between the smaller lords had deprived life of much of its excitement and the more warlike spirits sought to counteract what they no doubt considered the softness and degeneracy of the age by the institution of tournaments a species of private war cleansed of personal rancour and lacking the disastrous consequences to lands and tenants involved by the real thing to picture the tournament of this date as resembling the formal and chivalrous jousting in the lists of later centuries would be completely misleading for the most part the frequenters of these meetings were landless men younger sons and needy adventurers intent solely or at least mainly on making money by the capture of opponents whose chargers and armour then became their own and whose bodies might be held to ransom it was no shame for ten to set on one and william the marshal one of the most brilliant of these adventurers and the instructor of the young king gained praise by the skill with which he let his adversaries exhaust themselves before he flung his forces upon them this same marshal who went with another knight on a pot-hunting expedition during which they accounted for one hundred and three knights besides extra chargers on one occasion saw one of the opposing knights thrown by his horse and lying on the ground disabled with a broken thigh rushing out of the tent where he was dining he picked up the injured man and bore him back into the tent handing him over a prisoner to his companions to pay their debts with in this particular instance there was no doubt an element of rough humour but the whole spirit of the tournament was practical and unromantic though fame and glory were sought at the same time as wealth and the marshal would have set a higher value upon his reputation for skill and courage than upon the fund of ready money for which he was remarkable at a time when steel and silver were rarely found together the spirit of the tournament pervaded the field of battle and so far as the knightly combatants were concerned 
their chief aim was to capture and hold to ransom their adversaries rather than to kill them such lust of slaughter as they felt was satisfied at the expense of the unfortunate infantry drawn from the ranks of the peasants and yeomen and not worth ransoming after a desperate and decisive battle the chroniclers will recount a long list of knights captured but it is rare indeed that any are recorded to have fallen in battle and on such rare occasions it was usually by the hand of a common foot-soldier or by a chance arrow it was precisely this tradition of the respect due to gentle blood that made the norman knights so useless against the welsh or irish who ignored their gentility and fought to kill henry's genius for organization found scope in military matters as elsewhere during the reigns of the saxon kings the furred or national militia theoretically consisting of all the able-bodied male population was always liable to be called out in time of war and this liability had remained in force after the conquest under william the conqueror the country had been parcelled out into estates great and small the tenants of which held by the service of supplying a fixed quota of knights in no way proportionate to the size or value of the estate to serve in the royal army for forty days when required it has been already pointed out that henry the second encouraged the system of commuting personal service for a money payment and in order to ascertain the exact amount of service due he caused a general return to be made by his military tenants in eleven sixty six they were required to state how many knights they were bound to find and as there were two ways of providing for these knights either by granting them land in return for their services when required or by hiring them as occasion demanded a distinction was to be drawn between the knights in fiefed and those chargeable on the domains a further distinction was to be made between those knights already in fiefed at the time of the death of henry i and those of newer fiefment in many cases the greater barons had enfeoffed more knights than they were bound to supply probably for the most part during stephen's reign with the intention of augmenting their own private forces and henry claimed that they should pay skewage on this larger number of knights instead of on their original quota a claim which was strenuously resisted for the reorganization of the national forces an assize of arms was issued in england in eleven eighty one every holder of a knight's fee or of rents and property to the value of sixteen marks was to keep a coat of mail a helmet a shield and a lance the owner of property worth ten marks should have a hauberk an iron headpiece and a lance and all burgesses and the whole body of freemen should have a quilted jacket wambe an iron headpiece and a lance these arms were never to be parted with but to descend from father to son but in order to render the supply more accessible it was ordered that no burgess should keep more arms than his statutory quota and if he had others should give or sell them to those that required them at the same time jews were forbidden to retain coats of mail and hauberks presumably the most expensive portions of the outfit from the absence of any mention of horses it has been assumed by some writers that all these troops were expected to fight on foot but this is undoubtedly an error presumably the provision of a horse was left to the discretion of the soldier and practically the whole of the first class 
and a large proportion of the second would have been mounted men another noteworthy omission is that of the bow some thirty years later the holder of property worth twenty shillings was required to provide a bow and arrows but at this time it would seem that the bow was regarded as unworthy of a freeman and its use confined to the villain soldiers the justices itinerant were to publish this assize in the different county courts and to make it known that any defaulter would pay for his fault with his body and by no means escape with finer forfeiture at the same time the justices were to hold inquiries by juries of freemen of good standing as to the persons in the several hundreds and boroughs who held property worth sixteen marks or ten marks to draw up lists of such persons and to swear them to the observance of the assize the final article of the assize of arms directed that no one should buy or sell any ship to be taken away from england or export timber in this decree we have evidence of henry's comprehension of the value of a strong navy to the country in speaking of a strong navy it must not be supposed that any royal force of fighting ships existed or was even contemplated at this time such naval organization as existed was almost entirely confined to the federation of the cinque ports the origin and early history of this federation is very obscure but it seems clear that hastings and dover and probably the other three ports of sandwich hythe and romney were bound together by the possession of common privileges and common responsibilities in the reign of edward the confessor hastings was the undoubted head of this group of ports and the first to acquire privileges at the royal court and in connection with the herring fishery at yarmouth which was afterwards extended to the other members when the title of the cinque ports was assumed has not yet been discovered but it was clearly established by the beginning of the reign of henry the second as in eleven sixty one we find a payment of thirty four pounds seventeen shillings to the ships of the five ports which conveyed treasure across the channel as one main division of the english fleet employed in the expedition against lisbon in eleven forty seven was referred to as the hastingenses almost certainly alluding to the ships of the allied ports it would seem that the title was first officially recognized under henry the second the bonds of union were still so loose that the separate ports and their affiliated members received separate charters one of these of quite uncertain date issued by henry at westminster confirmed to the barons of hastings their privileges at court exemption from customs and other dues and the foreshore rights of strand and den at yarmouth in return for the provision of twenty ships for fifteen days when required henry also granted similar exemptions to the two ancient towns of rye and winchelsea affiliating them to hastings to whose quota of twenty ships they were to send two they were further exempted from the jurisdiction of the ordinary courts and might be impleaded only in the same manner as the barons of hastings and the cinque ports this privilege of a separate court was clearly of early date as in another charter given during the first six years of henry's reign to the men of hythe he ordered that they should not plead elsewhere than they were used to do namely at the shipway as a result of grants and confirmations of privileges the king could rely at need upon a force of some sixty ships the ships themselves were the ordinary fishing and trading vessels of the channel ports small but seaworthy easily converted into fighting ships by the erection of wooden fore and stern castles 
and manned by hardy and experienced sailors but for all their experience the little ships with their single square sail were not very manageable in a storm and the tale of shipwrecks was large when used for transport purposes it would seem that about a hundred soldiers could be carried by each vessel the sinkport vessels were bound to carry a crew of twenty-one but this was apparently an exceptional complement as in the levy of ships for the irish expedition of eleven seventy one the average crew was twelve men and a master such crews being carried by the thirty-six ships from norfolk and suffolk the seven from dorset and somerset six from devon two from london and one from herefordshire on the other hand the twenty-eight ships supplied by gloucestershire averaged only six men but eight from sussex nineteen and two from hampshire twenty-two apiece during the troubles of eleven seventy three most of the ships which were sent to sandwich to meet the ships of the sink ports carried crews of twenty or upwards and the two vessels from colchester carried sixty seamen between them probably the numbers were raised at this time in anticipation of attack as we find that an extra force of ten to twenty men were put on board the king's yacht each time it crossed with treasure this year this royal yacht was the only vessel permanently retained in the king's service naval forces being collected as required from the sink ports and other coast towns though there were at southampton certain private ship owners whose vessels were so often chartered for national service that they might almost be held to have constituted a miniature royal navy in embryo End of section twenty one